Hey everybody, welcome to NashDev. We're a podcast about software engineering in the Nashville developer community. I'm Will Golden, and I'm with Corey Elliott and Janelle Cochran. Today we're going to talk about teaching and mentoring and the path to programming. Hey Janelle, how's hey, it going? going? What's up? Man, I'm really excited you're here. Uh, I think we're going to have a really good time to learn about how you got started in programming and uh, what it's like to be a great teacher and a mentor. So how did it start? So it started with uh, my teacher at the time in third grade, Miss Kelly. Uh, she got locked out of her um, the, the admin section of the listening and reading um, center, the application running on OS9. Uh, I used to spend many days outside of class, outside of after class, basically, to play with the computer, see what it did, you know, know, play with the operating system. I didn't really know what it was. I knew what a keyboard was. I knew what a mouse was, but it was just some visual item that I could play with because I was bored after class, right? Helping her with print shop, if y'all remember what that is. <laughs> and so when she was panicking when she got locked out of her, her um, the admin part of the listening and reading um, program. And so I asked her, I said, could I, could I have a shot? I think I can get you in. And so I found a back door to reset her admin password. And therefore we got all the grades and therefore I got an A for that year. <laughs> and that was my start. That was my start where I was like, I think I, can, I think I can play with computers. You know, I like print shop, and I like, you know, trying to find new ways to do things. And it basically started there. Um, so on your LinkedIn, you have, like, hacking since third grade? <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely don't. I, I don't always mention that because it's kind of weird to say I did that in third grade. But that was very, that was, a, uh, that was an important step for me because I knew I could figure it out. I had the confidence that I could try. You know, I didn't know I would solve it. No one had the confidence I could solve it. They were just like, hey, what could, what's the worst that could happen? The grades don't get published this year. She got to figure it out on her own anyway. Um, and so it worked out. That was fun. Uh, it took about three hours. Wow. And that was it. That's From cool. then on, I had, at that point, I had a basic understanding of how OS 8 worked. And then so in the back of my mind, I was saying, like, I think I can work with these little machines here and there. What attracted you to, like, want to want to fool around with it or just kind of dig into it what was what was compelling about it the fact that it was inside the classroom uh that's one of the uh, the benefits of having computers in that time in the classroom with that they were there i know you know throughout my middle school years and high school years those same computers usually were still there and they collected dust however for younger children to see them in the classroom and have access to them is a is a big deal Totally. At least so, like, norm, I normalized it, right? Like, you, you, you see it there, and it's not like this foreign thing. Well, it, it, it was an, it was essentially, for, I'm sure for most kids, at least during those years, it was a toy that I didn't have at home, you know? Mm-hmm. So, ah, new computer thing, and it prints pretty, you know, banners, and the teacher asked me to come out to the class and help her do the banners and print shop. So I knew how to work with that operating system with those machines, and, I was, and so kind of went from there. I had time to play with things. And it just so happens when, you know, at those times when adults um, in, in, in the vicinity did not know how to work with those soft, that software well, I could take extra time to play with things. So they couldn't really police me to see if how efficient I was in trying to help them with their tasks. They just know they needed help. I was the one who was willing to tinker with it. And, they tr- and I was a decent student, so therefore they were like, you know, hey, you know, you're not going to be too bad about it. You know? 
So did you go straight through school and go directly into software or was it more roundabout? Well, in middle school and in early high school, I started um, a small, little small little business. And some, some kids did um, lemonade stands. Um, however, I did, I would help people with their computers. Like they have like, you know, um, printer issues or they need help um, using a CompuServe or something like that. At the time, if y'all remember CompuServe. CompuServe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, how do I install internet on my computer? And I would help them with that. And I, I continued, and it started with at the school because, you know, I was bored mostly. So I was able to take time to do other things with the teachers to build that trust, also to give me something to do. And it helped them. So, and I was, and apparently I was doing it for free at the time. And then so, when I got to the point where I know that I could get attention and could get paid to do it, I tried that. I never got paid. I don't know what happened. Somehow, <laughs> I, 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 I forgot. I did not know that invoicing was a thing. I did not know the word. So, <laughs> I didn't get So, you just like show up at somebody's house, you're there for two hours, and you fix the computer, and you're like, all right, well, I'll see you later. You know, they may pay, <laughs> they may pay me in food because it turns out the, the, the parents that needed help were the parents of my friends. So if I'm going over there hanging out with their kid, they're like, hey, by the way, could you look at this little thing here, get our printer rack working or something? And I do that and I get fed. So I was quite, quite <laughs> content as a child. So kind of work with that. That's awesome. Um, and then um, that was middle school, early high school. And then midway through high school, I kind of had a, a bit of a, a bit of a, a bit of a existential crisis, I guess is when mine happened. It was where I, I understood I had a passion for languages, period. Uh, I wanted, I, the high school I, uh, I went to with North Atlanta High School in Atlanta, because it's called North Atlanta. <laughs> and the, I was part of a magnet program called the International Baccalaureate, the IB program. And so a lot of my peers were people of, I mean, there were international students, there were people of different belief systems of different genders, of different gender identities, as well as the teachers. And so I really had this desire to talk to other people, to be able to communicate in a manner that's native to what speaks to them. So I, silly, it's a silly story, but I went around trying to learn any language that wasn't English to speak to people naturally. I just wanted to know how do I talk to people in other languages and how do I translate sayings and notions that I have in English, just say in slang, how does it translate to things in other languages to get the point across? Mm -hmm. So at that time I've been learning, I learned, I was, uh, I took French for like, since middle school, middle, sixth grade, middle school. During the middle of high school, I was still taking French in the IB. And at that time there was this big song called Throw Those Bows. <laughs> and I was like, man, if I could say that in French, that'd be awesome. So I was like, I'm gonna pick a day in French class. I'm gonna do it. So that's what I did. And so we had a, we had moments where we did dictation and stuff like that. But then, you know, we usually have like very fun discussions. The teacher would push us having discussions about things we children would really like to talk about. One of those things might be music. And I just took the opportunity. It was like I know how to say throw those bowls in French. And it was like, how do you say throw those bowls? You French. still remember it? Yes. Is je te sais coude. Throw those bows. Nice. That's what we're going to title the episode. Throw those elbows. You know, <laughs> technically, and you know, it could be a little. It could be completely wrong. However, 
he started saying it in class. Like when 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 he when he felt like this the the class were doing was doing you know pretty well, and he's trying to motivate uh, the students. You know, I guess we'll get in silly conversations about things of trips he went he he went on and stuff like that, and the parties he went to and stuff like that. And he'd be like, "Yeah, we was just this good." And he'll do the little motion here, <laughs> and because he apparently still saw the video and saw the dances, which was entertaining in uh, in a school that was. Um, he, uh, in majority African American in that majority African American city, uh, and he was a um, Caucasian teacher. That was pretty. Uh, that was pretty interesting to see. That was very interesting. To see. But that was it. Was nice, and that's where I sort of was like, I think there's value in that. So I wanted to say, what about other languages that have different character sets? What about I have I had some friends that are still that are then and now you know Islamic. So how do I how do I I, don't, I want to learn Arabic. Oh, I got to write in the other direction? That's hard. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, well, how do I say it? Uh, I have some friends from Ethiopia. So how do I, how do I learn Adu? You know, what, what, are, what are the alphabets for Adu? How do I say common phrases in them? And, you know, as children, we applaud each other when we have small victories, and those are very small victories where I was clearly probably mispronouncing things. Um, however, they would, you know, help me gain an understanding. And once I... Once I got, you know, towards my junior year, I noticed my passion for understanding how people connect through language kind of accelerated any other previous passions that I had. Originally, when, you know, you grew up in the inner city, you children seem to gravitate towards sports or music, especially in a city like Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and so... I saw a lot of my peers pursuing sports in music, and there's just always this push from the adults at that time to do sports, you know, especially if you have any type of athletic inclination. And so, I, but I didn't want that. I, inherently, I didn't like the long hours. <laughs> I didn't like the yelling by the coaches. Uh, it just wasn't really my thing, even though I like watching it, even though I like playing it. I didn't like having to play it. Um, and music seemed like everybody else was doing it. It's just like it's so cookie cutter to me. Everybody wanted to sound like the rappers at that time and look like them. Even though I enjoyed the music, I just feel like I didn't fit in in that manner. Um, and so I learned middle of my high school year that the verbal expression of language itself is a barrier for communication. And so I wanted to pursue ways to find to ways to communicate without language being the barrier. And so the obvious um, way in my head as a child was to speak all languages. If you speak all languages, then you get around the, the verbal expression as being the barrier because you always can work past that. Um, at the same time, I you know, always was interested in math, always interested in, in most sciences. And we was uh, forced to um, buy into this uh this this hoax i want to call it now to get a, a ti83 calculator ti83 plus right the graphic calculator and if i look i, ha I still have it and it's it's it's, it's obviously unattractive <laughs> but it was so it was so powerful not because we could graph things but because they had this facility of you being able to enter formulas you can create your own formulas that has some rudimentary basic like language some concept of if some concept of loop and I was like, man, if I could do this for on, on those computers over there that are sitting in the classroom collecting dust, 
I think I think I would have fun with that. I like that. And so what I did was I transitioned from human language in the forms of music and written. Um, and I said, I think I'm going to stop writing poetry. I think I'm going to stop writing music. I'm not going to fall into the pathway of I need to be an athlete or be a musician or be a writer. I want to write for machines. And so that that decision for um, allowed me to have the mental space to learn the constructs of that basic language in the TI-83. And I use that as my template going forward of saying, I think, what if other computers have the same facilities, the concept of if and then? I know what that means as a, you know, as a junior in high school. I know what the concept of a loops mean as a junior in high school. And I already had um, kind of uh, the will to explore machines, you know, modern operating system at that time, operating systems at that time. So I went from there and just said, I think that's the one I want to do. I'm going to keep it in my back pocket, and I'm going to always find ways outside of academia in order to, in order to, um, to pursue that. Um, at the same time, I was still involved in things outside of school that were like extracurricular. For example, I was um, working at Morehouse in the optics lab. Uh, I, there was a summer program called College Prep, originally offered as an after-school program by Georgia State. And so in middle school, me and my friends and I got involved with that. And so we wanted that to continue through middle school to college, to college and uh, high school. However, it, it kind of morphed into a summer program by the time I got to high school. And then in high school, I was like, you know, always any child is trying to rebel. So the thing I was wanted to rebel was, you know, going against, you know, being too scripted, I guess. So they wanted to do... Uh, a tour of the campus of Morehouse at the time of all the touristy things that people see when they go on campus tours because we are high schoolers. And I was like, I don't want to see that. I live practically down the street. I don't really care about the library that no one really truly uses. I much rather go talk to the professors because if I went here, I would know the people I'll be interacting with. So I just happened to run across uh, Dr. Really Rockward. He is uh, currently st still. He's one of the physics professors at Morehouse College. And so I told him about what I like to do and, why I, and that, that I was involved with the, um, the college preparatory um, summer program. And I was like, you know, could I at least sit in, in your lab and learn some of the things that, um, that you're doing? And so that was my step, my, my foot into the door of, you know, um, scientific research. So that, and, and during that summer, I was able to basically cut out of that that college prep summer program that was doing all kinds of, in my um, measurement, whack stuff. Like, they'll be <laughs> like, oh, you know, we're going to go down and together to the mall. We're going to go see this play. And I was like, we're going to have these classes on, you know, that's air quotes for the people who are listening. We're going to have these quote-unquote classes on things like how to build a resume, which I already knew how to do. <laughs> and so I was like, I'd much rather go work in the lab. And that's what I did. I cut out on all of those preparatory things that said you had to dress up in a suit and tie on Wednesdays for no apparent reason, even though I did not have suit and ties or whatever. And I couldn't really go to the evening parties because I was on probation because I didn't wear a suit and tie. So I was like, forget it. I'll just go to the lab and learn something. Um, when I went to undergrad at Sewanee, yes, Sewanee is right. I have to say that, you know, when you graduate from one, you got to say that, to represent. 
I still had that desire to not do homework. I was, I was studying the subjects I won with her, and I double majored in math and physics. I was studying all the stuff I wanted. This stuff was hugely interesting, but I was still tired, <laughs> still slept in class, <laughs> and didn't want to do any homework. And so in, in that time period where I didn't do any homework, I was either working doing work study because I needed to somehow pay for part of my education, so I used that to kind of pay off things. But also, uh, I used that time to procrastinate. And my way of procrastinating was writing software to building networks. Man, um, I wish that my procrastination was quite as productive. It, it was much more interesting than any of the stuff <laughs> they was asking us to do and say the homework is done Saturday morning at 9 a.m. And I'm like, you know, good and well, if you tell a student that, they're going to wait till Friday night or Saturday morning to do it. I said, you know, I'm going to get that Saturday work done because it's obvious if you miss that. However, I much rather spend my most of my time outside of work with just learning how computers work. That's when I first introduced myself to uh, virtualization. That was my first, um, you know, time period where I entered contributing to open source. Um, I definitely used a problem that I had with my own personal experiences to to as a, as a kind of a stepping stone to force myself to cultivate myself um, for learning other things in software and that's what I try to steal in my students is like try to find something that speaks to you at that time it was my music I left home angry at the world went to undergrad however music consoled me even though I was no longer writing music um, I still played some piano on the side however you know the listening of music is what kind of consoled me and so I really really wanted a way to manage my music I and at the time, there was just iTunes, you know, ugly version of U iTunes UI. And I had an iPod someone gave to me, you know, like an old iPod someone gave to me. However, I had an old laptop with Linux on it. And I was like, I have no way of managing my music. I have all these CDs. I want to burn them. I want to put them on thing and have my playlist while I'm walking down, walking to class. And so I wrote uh, one of the first cross-platform multimedia managers for the iPod that ran on OS 10, OS 10, uh, Windows XP, and Linux, which was Yellow Dog Linux at the time, for the PPC, the G5, G4, and G5, and that was my that that decision was one of the hardest hardest things to complete. It still would never ever be complete, but the act of doing it allowed me to learn all the parts of software development, the online open source community, as well as, as well as myself. Like what are my triggers and what will I need to cultivate a plan for myself? So I had to learn how networks work. I had to learn how hardware devices work. I wanted to support more than just an iPod. So I was like, oh, MT, M, MTP devices, what's a Zoom? Hmm. What's a USB device? Hmm. What's a kernel? Oh, I got to compile a kernel. What? What's that? <laughs> and so it took me through a lot of things. And luckily, at the at my undergrad, um, the net the ITS group, the Inform, uh, Information Technology Services group, was very supportive um, of my pursuits. And they, you know, gave me all the static IPs I want. And it was cool with me, you know, having you know, all the types of firewalls and networks I want to build build inside my dorm room 
<laughs> I wanted to. Um, they was very supportive, and that immensely helped me. I had the space to do it. Um, I had not sacrificed, um, I guess, good grades for it. And, and that was a conscious choice, and I knew it could go bad, but I felt that it was worth that chance. I felt like at this point in my life, I had to carve out a path where I know where I can choose how I'm cultivated. And that was that's always been a big thing, and that's the reason, one of the reasons why I choose to teach at the NSS is that I feel people should have a choice on how they're cultivated. And everything's a hypothesis at this point. I'm guessing how my experiences would affect me. You know, you don't really know until you do it. And so we can apply the scientific method there. Nobody's looking, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and just and just do that. So my, you know, my, my procrastination is what led me to be a software developer or a, a hyper polyglot as, you know, Wikipedia calls, calls it or something like that. It, it that and that's it's pretty bad if you if you if you if you try to tell students that procrastinators right? make the best programmers <laughs> <laughs> right like that it, it, I, that was a time where I had a, a teacher ask me to come speak to students and they were, and the students after was asking like so how did you how did you do it and I was like should I be too maybe I'm being too honest <laughs> am I allowed here. to say this yeah you know, and I said it don't do your homework <laughs> stay up late sleep in class right and. and <laughs> And then afterwards, I felt so bad because I was like, man, I'm pretty sure that's not what the teacher wanted me to tell those students that they that procrastination got me here and choosing what I procrastinate on was a was a thing. You know, they, they're pretty sure they didn't want to hit it. I feel a little bad about it still, but it was the truth at the time. Hey. <laughs> so if you have the opportunity to go back and mentor baby Jernell, what what would you have told yourself in that moment uh nothing I would just observe and I would observe because future me uh, as we evolve I realize that my evolution sometimes requires the discarding of some things that are old in, in myself and I think that's true for most humans you know we don't hold all the experiences and all the the result, even though if we heard the results of the of the experiences we have in aggregate, the the individual value of those experiences we lose as we get older, and so it will be more or less the young me mentoring the older me, because I'm able to see and maybe regain something from now. I see the aggregate result of all my experiences, but maybe there's something I'm missing from the value of each individual experience or something. Um, that's more or less how I feel. It's pretty awesome. It's like the butterfly effect. You don't want to change anything. If you, if you like where you're at now, you know, like just, yeah, there's hard times and there's rough times and there's good times, but man, just you got to ride that wave back to where you're at, right? Yeah. And so during my, my last years of college, um, when I figured out what I wanted to pursue, I said I can go two ways. Either I can go more research or more software development. So I, I tried two things. I was like Facebook or Vanderbilt. So I had a friend of mine who, um, during undergrad, I was, you know, help, helping tutor. And I was like, I think, I think you can do these Facebook challenges. I said, do the Facebook challenges. Do three of them, do them in three different languages. I challenge you to it. And so I worked through them too. Cause, you know. And so he got into Facebook. That was his, he's now a Uber or something like that. He's, he's awesome. Mean. Dull. <laughs> yeah. So he's awesome. Uh, but I chose Vanderbilt. And I, I didn't, I didn't ever apply. I didn't apply to 
uh, Facebook formally. Um, but I did the challenges anyway to be because they were fun. But I was I was very my heart at that time my heart was set on pursuing research. So I chose um, I had the plan say, given that my community around me has always been like oh you know young black man you're dead or in jail you'll be dead by 25. So when Kanye came out with that song said you know I'm still alive jokes on you I was so excited because I was like haha yes, <laughs> but. Uh, I was like, well, then what could I do? What could I use to, how could I use all this to change the things around me? And, you know, to, to, to somewhere direct this, this anger that I have or this, uh, this, this unsatisfaction with the state of the community and the environment around me. And so I made a decision. I said, in order to have an understanding of, of, of how to change things around me, I have to have a greater understanding of the human brain. And so I said, well, I already, I already have this. I see the pattern in myself where I like learning many languages. It never went anywhere. And I can learn multiple programming languages. That's going somewhere. I wonder if there's some union between the two. Uh, I, and I felt that could be could happen. So I was like, I'm going to just go see. I don't know if this is going to work out. I, I, I might end up pouring on the street. Hey, but I'm at least going to do it. I'm at least going to say that I did it. And so that was my choice of going to Vanderbilt. I, 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 for two, for like a whole week, I slept on the floor of uh, one of my former classmates, uh, you know, hard floor, uh, one of his, of his apartment. He was in grad school in mathematics, um, um, Georgi. And it was that sleeping bag was I had a Ninja Turtle sleeping bag <laughs> <laughs> and inside and in my clothes bag I put some stuff in it so I can like have a pillow and once I had that interview um, they said hey they we want you to start but you got to start in two weeks so I spent that two weeks sleeping on the floor and I was like man can't wait till I get that start that job because I will have I'll be able to you know do something with that and so add that the two weeks of time of me sleeping on the floor I, I, I tried to come up with a plan to say, to figure out how to solve this huge optimization problem. When it comes to privilege, the, the loaded word of privilege around race, around gender, uh, in all things of oppression, it's a, it, to me it seems like that it has the features of an optimization problem. I, I know that one of my defects, not not really defect, but one of my um, shortcomings in the sciences and in academia is that I'm forced to, my brain, the way my brain works, I'm forced to re-derive things. Like, I, can't, I used to have a great memory, and I may still have a great memory in some aspects, even through, but however, through undergrad, I, I felt myself having a difficulty of just doing that's following a template and just plugging and chugging. You know, here's the equation, use it. Here's the equation, use it. But rather, I couldn't grasp it because I couldn't see enough of the picture. I saw that I had one of those features where I needed, I needed to see more of the picture and be convinced of it in order to use it, in order to buy into it. And so given that that was a shortcoming of myself that showed in undergrad and my professors hated it, uh, <laughs> I noticed that when I had opportunities to see as much as I wanted to see, then my results went through the roof. So I was like, well, how, fa how far can I expand it? 
Like, if I can expand and, and include the entire human race and human history, why not? So, if so, I figured that if I have the tool of, if I consider everything of my experience as being a tool, the things that I pick up on and patterns that I notice being potential things I could use to solve some optimization problem. I don't know what this problem looks like, but just consider the experience as being some set of tools. That means all of the all of the the mathematical theories that I remember. That means all of the interpersonal relationships in which I had. I mean, all of the things that I notice about myself, the person. Everything that I have could possibly be something in my concept of toolbox, and that's what I have um, internal, internally as an individual, the concept of the toolbox. And so at any point in life, I need to be able to reach inside that toolbox and pull something out to probably use it. Okay, And so um, I was like, well, if I can mass enough tools, that increases my chances of being able to attack this problem when I feel ready. Now, the problem with that is with any individual that's growing, feeling ready is something <laughs> that kind of eludes us. Even if we're all good at what we do, even if we enjoy what we do, even if people give us praise, we still may not feel ready. Like imposter syndrome. Yeah. So the imposter syndrome of attacking this huge problem. And we already see examples of people doing it in their own little way. Um, and so... I was like, well, I just need to amass these tools. I'm just going to focus on that. And so I took the fact that I can learn multiple languages fast, specifically programming languages, to learn as many as I can. That means all the projects I do, I try to implement them in all the languages I've been exposed to. That means that in, in scenarios where I'm getting to work with individuals or particularly older individuals where they may, they're, they're telling off of their you know, cognitive abilities as we get older, I can take advantage of that and use it as a way to get exposure. That's the reason why I learned, that's how I learned Fortran. I was able to jump on a project that required me to understand a little Fortran because it helped the person out. Um, I was able to do some sort of automate, I was able to do automation early because I was, you know, I did independent study um, throughout my um, undergrad year in, um, undergrad years in astronomy. So I was like, okay, I know the things around astronomy now. Um, and so if I take all those tools I have, how can I put, bring this together in a manner that allows us to have a better way of solving that problem, to trigger the environment in just a way so that the results change for me and my peers? I made a promise to my friends early on where it was like maybe a month or two after one of my friends in middle school was shot in, uh, during gang activity at Walden, Walden Middle School. And his name was Bobby Welch. When that happened to uh, to our community, to our school, you know, everybody was heartbroken. And so, but in the arrogance of children, we felt that, you know, hey, I think we could do something about this. I think we have to make a choice now to either eat now or eat later. And and that's that's one of the first times where I was able to verbalize the the forced decision, the forced choice of how do I survive? And that problem and the, the verbalization of that problem and the restating of that problem that allowed us to make a decision as individuals, do I do things to make changes now to eat, make sure I can physically eat food now, or do I make changes to make sure I can eat in the future? And so some of my friends chose now, and their results are due to that, and some of my friends chose later, and those were conscious decisions. And my conscious decision was to eat later 
you know, that I'll say, I'll say as a child, I might not be able to control my scenario around eating now. I might not be able to, you know, have the nourishment I need now. I can't control that. What is Sophic Wear? So Sophic Wear, we specialize in democratizing influence and democratizing power to change our communities through technology. And, and that's a very lofty goal if we want to bring everyone in the society, not just technologists, give everyone the power to change their community using this very, very flexible tool called software, you know, <laughs> uh, with the cloud, all the buzzwords you want to throw on it. I'm on the website right now. It says your tech stack on fleek. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's right, you know. And so there's two pieces of that. One is that, you know, everybody who is doing anything online needs to top tier services. So we try to provide that uh, for everyone. So consulting is a big deal. Uh, the other side of that is now I feel like we are at a point where we, ha- we will no- amass enough knowledge space amongst the general public to train them up on vocabulary and tools in which they could use. A good example of that is social media, you know, being able to communicate across waters and states, um, across many distances is, is huge in terms of having conversations around things that affect our lives. Uh, another angle is, you know, open data. We've, uh, we're, we've built an open data um, API, and we're building tooling on top of that for the purpose of accelerating delivery of information for everyday people around what's happening in their community, what's happening with their government, and how they could use that to change things. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a big goal, and it's scary sometimes at times. But I definitely feel that, you know, such a pursuit is worth it, and that Suffolk Wear can be a catalyst for that. It can be the joining between social issues and technology, and more than just a the surface way that, oh, we got a website, you know, we can tell people about the things that we think we don't like, you know, we can do a little bit more than that. We can, we can craft our message and craft our workflows for people so that we can have the greatest amount of influence. A good example is Code for Nashville, is where, where we, can social, we can socially engineer the, the city to, um, to, to, to create a demand for transparency. And it's not actually going in and creating the policies because that's hard, that's a hard barrier there. But we can work around that barrier of where the majority of people don't understand how to write policy, don't understand how to get you know, grassroots support around policy. We don't, we don't always know that. But what we can do is create the impression of demand. We can use the same tools to say there's a scarcity in the ability of the average of the influence that the individual has. We can use the models of where on social media you can gain influence by simply being you. Well, we can take that model and apply it elsewhere. And it won't be a perfect fit. That's fine. But it's a starting point. And then we can iterate on that solution until we get something that fits a little, little bit better. And then we just lead, lead that for everyone else to keep working on it. I thought and one of the really cool, cool things about Code for Nashville and, and those type of programs is like, you build a tool that drives the process to get the data, right? Like you can say, I'm gonna build a thing that shows you the, all the bus lines and their routes and the schedules and stuff. Well, that data doesn't exist. So then you can pair with a person that could provide, a person in the government to actually provide that data for you. You actually open up transparency 
through saying, hey, I'm going to build this thing. Can you help me get the data for it? Right. Yeah, and it, that essentially is like the 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 applying the self cultivation approach to a group of people to a city. It's like if we can choose the problems that will force us to encounter the hurdles that allow us to solve these larger problems. If we have an issue with transparency around how police treat people, we have the we can create a problem and create the vac create a demand for that using something that people can virtually interact with. You know, if we can ask the question and have the conversation happen, we're creating an environment where we're normalizing that, that desire for that, that, that want. And then now we can, find, we can encapsulate that want as a project that has code around it. And now we took something very abstract and put it in a text file. Yeah, quantify it. Yeah. So we can quantify that, essentially that desire and quantify that, that change. In fact, we can also do the opposite is quantify the, um, the impedance for change. It's one of, the one of the real big things I want to. I want to know that given the way technology and information flows, why some information doesn't flow in the same, we're using the same tools. This episode was sponsored by Strongloop, an IBM company. Strongloop helps you compose APIs, build and deploy and monitor node apps. You can learn more at strongloop.com. There's also a makerspace that has just recently opened, and there's a focus on bringing um, kids and like all kinds of, it's in East Nashville, um, but they're partnering with some schools, and uh, so there's a whole lot of really cool opportunity at the makerspace there. Yeah, I definitely agree. Like Efforts like that are, are, are pretty powerful, and I feel that that is one half of the larger solution, is you know preparing the next minds, um, giving them, you know, some fertile ground to stand on. And even because they will achieve things that's far beyond what most adults will without effort. <laughs> uh, and the second part is how do we retrofit this to the current adults? You know, <laughs> if we want to have a community that is more welcoming and more inclusive for everyone, we need to somehow retrofit this world because guess what? They are the parents of those students, of those children. So somehow we got to get to the children directly, but also we got to change the parenting ever so, ever so slightly, make it normal, make it um, easy to think about openness and inclusion. I think that's necessary. This is kind of off topic, but it kind of reminded me, one of the most rewarding things when I was teaching was like seeing a person that had no code experience, really um, basic computer skills almost, um, that would come in and learn to code, and then you can see they become a different person. Like the the person they were before, they could think in terms of code, and the person they are, they become. They're separate people. The way that they communicate is different afterwards. Um, I've even been told like they're able to their their logical reasoning changes even like outside of code, like how they would actually approach a problem uh, interpersonally, things like that. Like you, you, you completely change a person, which is so weird. And, and like, it, it, it like, I, I can't think of much else that I could do on an individual level that could make that much of a dramatic impact on someone. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the way I tend to think of it is not that I'm changing people. It's more that I'm trying to, 
and on earth what's already there really uh, i definitely feel that it's know, definitely some human archaeology right like kind of dusting off the bones there a little bit but. yeah you know i think people have their own talents but i don't always think people are pushed to push the limits of those talents right we're taught that we do what do what we can to achieve our potential but we don't ever push that potential like how can i push that go even further and that's something that I really try to do with my friends is that I want to enable them in a manner that that accelerates what they want. And in the process of that, I have to evolve and they evolve and we get something out of that mutual evolution. And so that's we've talked about this before, but it's that concept of that growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. It's, yeah. it, you know, you you take a person and they're saying they'll say, I, I, I'm not good at that. That's that's a fixed mindset. But a growth mindset would be, I'm not good at that yet. Yeah. Right? Or just, or even if you acknowledge that you're not good at something, that's a start knowing where your limits are. But also saying that, you know, your current, your experience that you had up to this point, there's value in that. Like, there's more than just the results you've got from that. It is really also the thing, the, the intricacies of how you got the results are just as important. And what I sometimes some things I tell my students is that if you, you know, if you was a writer up to this point, you're good, you're fine. You've already um, had some notion of wanting to communicate things beyond words. Uh, or if you was a trucker, you know, you already have concentration. You already have the ability to segment your segment your conscious concentration from like autopilot you know that line is if you got to drive long time long time being conscious about everything you do can tire you out how do you avoid that you have to somehow say well i'm compartmentalized the modal functions somewhat and have some sort of like event system that can like overwrite and interrupt basically interrupt when bad thing when things Air are handling demanding. you know yeah exactly so it's it's like we we have the components already there and with computer systems, we've we've done a, a, a job. To, we've tried our best to emulate the behaviors of of the nature of ourselves, and that's what humans tend to have done all all through our history is try to emulate what nature nature does. And one of the things that we can do to influence nature, and the next stage I feel like is having um, human evolution, is not just oh we built some cool technology and we can change the way things work and we can be like Gattaca or something. I don't think we're gonna be like Gattaca at all. I think like the future is gonna look like what it looks like today. But I also think like how we interact and our connections between us in this society will change. I think it will be more of a um, of a the macroorganism approach, where um, where by default, if if our, our aggregate contributions to various issues and um, opinions about things is what changes and moves society in whatever direction. And I want to help get there, where we're not just saying I have to consciously tell someone else to do something else on my behalf to may have a say-so. I'd much rather society as a whole, based upon their current opinion, determine what happens, because that's what we want. Like that's that we're cutting out the middleman here, so that means that we gotta find, we gotta consider um, it basically hacking. There is an attack surface um, to getting things to change in our society, and so if we can, through social engineering, through building of technology, through building interpersonal relationships, having these difficult conversations, we can 
find the right formula um, in order to enable everyone to have a contributing factor to changing society. And that alone, this alone, any issue. There's some issues I care a lot about, so I'm gonna give a lot of output. And there's some issues I really don't care that much about, and I won't give as much output. However, there are other people that offset me, and so my contribution to something, my outwardly contribution to something, usually in the terms of data, can influence and change things. So imagine if we can under, under educate the entire public on the value of data and use that data as a driver for that change. We win. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, your uh, teaching methodology and, and kind of what what your approach is? <laughs> Core might be able to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jarnell was my mentor. Uh, so a few of things is that delivery is very important. Um, so I try my best to, even though I struggle with this every single class, uh, I, I try my best to use real world um, examples in order to deliver abstract concepts um, like you know just metaphors not, and I don't think that because I, I know that that works in teaching no actually not I just was winging it and uh, hopefully it worked out and it just sort of worked can, can out. Can I put you on the spot real quick? Yeah. So how would you explain a function to someone that's never coded before? Okay absolutely so I usually like the recipe example is that you know a function is simply a set of inputs um, where some executable statements run a little set of inputs and then generate some set of outputs. Uh, and so in the case of a recipe, uh, you know there's some inputs that you have, and it tells you the parameters in which these, um, these inputs must be, the amounts, the types, the, the ingredients, if you want to call them those. And you somehow have a set process on how you combine them. And that set process to combine them really doesn't change as long as you follow in the same recipe. That recipe has a name. In fact, that recipe name is usually the signature, right? If you can, like, tag on who made the recipe, like, you know, uh, um, how to be hot chicken. Um, Roast that, duck and mango salsa. Right. You know <laughs> who the recipe is from, and you know it has a specific formula. And then the output is something that you want. Hopefully the combination of those things is, is what you want. And so I'd say that there are a lot of things in our lives that are simply, yes, we're going from something that we, we want to something that we, we're going from something that we have to something that we want. And so it's simply just mapping. I'm mapping from one set of things to another set of things. And the whole mapping approach is that we do that all the time. I, I, we can talk about, you know, phone books even works. That I have some, I want a number, but I have a name. I must have some relationship between numbers and names to figure out, to get the end result that I want. Um, if I want to get to A to B and I want to use Google Maps, I must have an idea of the name or the location and I get a location. <laughs> I get a physical place on the map that I can then follow. It's just simply taking two things and putting them together and see if they work. And that's, that's functions. And that's how we build functions. And in mathematics, you know, most of our functions aren't, you know, mathy. You know, they're this more like, I'ma just declare that, you know, x equals zero all the time. You know, done. You know, you've created your function. <laughs> and you make up these rules. And it is the world and the context in which you have in terms of the problem that you're trying to solve, um, that you have domain over that rule. And, you know, you can try how those rules fit together all you want. You can iterate on it. 
you know, I tried the recipe for, you know, making sweet potato, you know, muffins. Well, I'll try, get, try it again with some slightly, some different tweaks here and there. So to get the different result, and then that so instead of a sweet potato, you pass in blueberries and you get blueberry muffins. Right, you know, <laughs> and so I know I can try to infer the the way those things are meant to go together in terms of nature. Like I can use my iterations or my collections of trying to build some sort of like mapping expression, as we call them, from something I want and to something I have, and, and I use all the different versions of that to infer how nature works. Like, oh, you know, when you just replace sweet potatoes with blueberries, it might not work. I might need to change the proportions of other things. Like, you can use those experiences, those trials and errors, not that you lose those trials and errors to gain understanding of how any system outside of what you're working with works. So I can use my personal relationships for how I work with them to infer how all humans kind of interact, right? I'm not a special snowflake in that case, but I know that all snowflakes have form. You know, I know that all snowflakes may be made of water you know it's, it's a thing uh i can infer that well you know maybe there's some other properties out there that's causing shapes to be different hmm that's interesting i don't may not know what that is but it's, it's a question um and so i think the you know going from what we have to what we want is kind of the basis of understanding of mapping expressions from something that we have going to something to what we want and that's essentially a function and if you have executable statements in the, in the middle meaning that i can repeat these statements um to going for something i want to something i have it's that's a function you're done you know what's one of the most uh, rewarding things that you found uh so far in in your path to be a teacher and in, in, in you know i really like the aha moment when, when people have that aha moment and it happens for different things at different times for different people and it's awesome when they just they, they feel like they get it. And it, sometimes when they get it, they can't even express how they got it or can't even get it out their mouths. And it's so it's so rewarding to see them get it because they, I feel like they've made that connection that speaks to them and they can just use it as a foothold to keep going. I think that's so, so awesome. Totally. Yeah. Because usually they usually teach me something in that, in that, in that moment. They usually, it's, it's, it's that aha moment that pl- plants that seed that grows into this root that, that they base all their other, um, knowledge around especially in that domain of, of coding right like I, all of a sudden functions click okay and, and whatever that thing that made it click for me i'm going to apply that same like you said mapping that same logical mapping to other things how do loops work okay loops are similar in, in that it's a set of statements that's going to repeat over and over and over again yeah you can call a function in a loop so forth um so like you can see, you can see like if you look at like the mind as a, as a graph, you can see where like this, 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 that aha moment is like that, the root node of the graph and it just kind of branches out from there. Right. Yeah. And, and definitely where, you know, one of the examples of I gave for my current class is that, you know, how, you know, how to, you know, how to think through methods in classes. I was like, oh, if we have a car, you know, um, the, the, the interface is what the human can interact with to make it easy. You know, those are kind of like your methods, right? If I want to turn a car, I don't have to manually open the hood and then make the spark plug spark and pump the gas at the same time and then make the current flow. I don't have to manually use my hands for that. I can go turn my risk. And so me turning my risk is the interface. Or if I want to change gears, I don't have to go and say, well, man, hey, man, you know, go in the engine. Um, 
if I want to turn on the lights, I don't have to go touch the battery and then run the cord manually to the uh, to any other peripherals or anything like that. I can just say I can provide humans an easy way to do it. And that easy way is your interface. And even though that that one little turn does a lot of stuff, you won't you don't have to know how that other stuff works. It's great if you do. That may mean you can help build a car. That's great. Or you can help improve a car. That's awesome. But just to use a car, all you got to make it just make it easy. And that one little interface may do many, many steps. And so that, you know, brings it home to people where it's like, OK, I'm just trying to make this easy. I know there could be intricacies to this. Uh, I know that it could, you know, take, you know, m- you know, many different moving parts that I don't know exactly how it works. But if I can just get someone to turn a car by turning their wrist or pushing a button. What? Man, that that it does all the work for you. And so that. You know, stuff like that, as well as, you know, repeating things over and over again, <laughs> seems to give people an opportunity yeah. to kind of make it valuable to them, to, to see what, I'm, what we're trying to teach them in software development in their world. And that's kind of the trick there is that so you're not so much stepping into one room and going to another. It's more or less I'm trying to bring that world and say it's already there. You're, you've been doing it. It's the words are different, you know. I think that one of the most... Uh, important things that you gave to me as your mentee was an understanding and acknowledgement of what in my world meant. So I think that it gave me um, a bridge, a way to access this world that I didn't feel quite a part of and that maybe people didn't understand my path to get there and then I found Janelle and Janelle he he got it he understood and and he was able to um I don't know facilitate a uh a feeling of I do belong here I do have something to contribute and I can do it yeah and it's pretty pretty empowering to I mean, that's what he did. That, he yeah. was <laughs> he was able to say, you know, here's the path you took, and it doesn't matter what that path is. It's a valid path, and you have something to contribute. It doesn't matter what it is, but you have something to contribute. And uh, I think that was probably one of the first moments of oh, somebody somebody gets it. Somebody understands where I've come from, and they're a part of this world too. And and I can do this. Yeah. And to, to see you, to see you, you bloom into what you have today is definitely another reward. It's like I get to see, you know, I get to see the spectrum. I get to see the progress, and I never really have to or ever really guess where people are going to go. Right? I, I don't. It's, it's it's so much more realistic and so much more rewarding to just let it play out, because people will make their own path. People want their own path. And even if they try to follow someone else's path, they still unconsciously make their own path. You know, no, you know, you can't be in one place and two, and you know, you're unique in your place and time at all points. And so, you know, like like Corey was saying, I definitely see that everyone has something from their path that they could, you know, give. Now, not doesn't always mean people are aware of what that is. Like that's the hard part. It's like knowing what's that's the thing people question themselves on. Is it valuable enough, right? Is it what people want? You know, do, who cares? And what matters is really that the individual cares, you know, because 
you know, your your even if it's true that the immediate surroundings might not care, that's fine. In that context, they don't really matter. What matters is the people who care. And you might not be able to point them out, and you might not be able to see them, or it might not be in this time period. However, the existence of an information makes it true. It makes it doable. You know, it's like it's the conceiving of an idea, really. It's like making an idea a physical thing in this world. We fold over, we literally fold over people's views and make it reality by folding two parts of reality and creating a point by folding it over and balling it up. And then now we can measure it. And that makes it real physically in this world. Like, even if it's, even if it's an idea that is only partially true, it is still, once you say it, the connections are happening somewhere. And you might not even say it correctly, but someone else is triggering someone else in a manner that you might not be able to measure, they may not be able to realize, and they might not be able to man measure or control. And that creates it. You know, we're a, I think we are, are, are ev one of our evolutionary um, advantages as, as Homo sapiens sapiens is our ability to control and create our, you know, basically change our environment. And through our ideas, we're able to notice the patterns in the in nature and then emulate them and then also be able to make changes on those those ideas and those influences so as a teacher you're kind of like uh the dude from inception you're like <laughs> <laughs> you're planting these seeds in people's brains all of a sudden they're gonna like 10 years from now it's gonna be like <laughs> the I, master system <laughs> gonna take down <laughs> I, I feel like someone asked me a while back and it's so it's this is a it's a it's a funny weird thing it's someone asked me so what is your first name Janelle? what does it mean and i don't have a i don't I, up until this point i never really had an answer for it because when i was given the name it didn't really mean anything but I was like, well, I think I have to figure out what it means. And I think it means, I think Jernail means catalyst. It's, it's, that's the core of it, is that I cannot, it's not a, it's not a measured uh, influence always. Is that I, I must influence, is that I, I, I must provide the catalyst for people to evolve. And that's essentially what we do anyway, right? We do that unconsciously because we can't control how we affect people. We can't measure how we affect people. And so when we do interact with people, I always feel that regardless of who those people who those people are, we gain something from that connection. That's like the most valuable thing someone can provide you. It's just connecting with them. Even if you disagree with them, you hate their guts, they've given you something that no one else has been able to give you, especially because it's them. And that's that helps shape our world. It helps shape what's important to us. It shapes helps shapes what we're flexible on, what we're not flexible on. We're basically exercising all of the angles in which we could change or could want or anything we perceive as real by simply them providing us that data, they've done the greatest service to us. You know, and I feel like that's the reason why my interpersonal relationships is really them providing me something. It's really them helping me see more of the picture. Without that, I have no idea. It's just me as a guy in his head, you know, but that's only so useful. You know, that's only yet so fulfilling. Only when I connect with people like Corey can I be like, man, I've I really gained something. This is actually a gift. And, like, I, it's like I'm a thousand times thankful for that. That's cool. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Nash Devcast. And if you have something to say, be sure to go to nashdevcast.com slash call in and leave a message. This has been a production of Relationary Marketing. Our show was edited this week by Rodney Norris and our producer, Clark Buckner. This episode was sponsored by Strongloop, an IBM company. Strongloop helps you compose APIs, build and deploy and monitor node apps. 
You can learn more at strongloop.com.